We have to find a way to talk and have dialogue and be tolerant between other views. You have to have open dialogue, and that's where free speech is so important. Consent's a very important thing, and today in the Me Too movement, it's been very important because I think it's really opened up a lot of eyes. Cannabis is a healing herb. We as the people, we need to stand up and make a move. If you committed sexual assault, it doesn't matter when it was, you should be held accountable for that. However, we have to make sure that we actually make sure they committed sexual assault, and we have to make sure that all allegations are verified. So put in these programs thinking that it'll help everyone, but what they forget is that the pathway to hell is paved with good intention. And I think that's what this whole movement is all about anyways, is uh, trying to be open to ideas. Welcome to the Liberty Talks Podcast with your host, John Douglas, and we are live at the Coog Radio Station. I'm so excited for this and so happy. So for those of y'all that don't know about Liberty Talks, I'll tell you a little bit about us before we get started. So Liberty Talks is a conservative libertarian news organization in which we do lots of commentary, interviews. We have a website, libertytalks.net. It's all about politics and podcasting and stuff. It's a lot of fun, and today is our first podcast at Coog Radio. So let's jump right into it. And the first thing I want to jump into today is the CNN Climate Change Town Hall. Now, this was an amazing thing because... Uh, that night at the CNN Climate Change Town Hall, we saw the ego, the id of the Democratic Party. We got to see all of their deepest, darkest feelings about climate change, and we got to see them virtue signal to their base and to the left on how much they care because they're willing to spend yours and other people's money. And that's a very exciting thing, and so we're going to jump right into that because, I mean, it was bad. It was basically political suicide. I actually tweeted out that the Democrats committed uh, political seppuku. So let's jump right into that. And the first thing I want to jump into is Bernie Sanders at, at this uh, climate change town hall. Bernie just, he, 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 I mean, he goes there. That's the, th that's the thing about Bernie. Bernie doesn't care. Uh, he, he doesn't care what anyone thinks. He doesn't care if he needs to sound political or how electable he sounds. He'll just go there. If he's thinking it, he'll just say it. And so today... Uh, not today, at the CNN Climate Change Town Hall, what Bernie Sanders said is that he actually supports abortion in poor, mainly black-dominated countries, basically population controls, uh, to limit the spread of people in these countries so you can stop climate change. And uh, this is just crazy. And so we got some uh, audio here. I'll play it real quick. Human population growth has more than doubled in the past 50 years. The planet cannot sustain this growth. I realize this is a poisonous topic for politicians, but it's crucial to face. Empowering women and educating everyone on the need to curb population growth seems a reasonable campaign to enact. Would you be courageous enough to discuss this issue and make it a key feature of a plan to address climate catastrophe? Well, Martha, the answer is yes. And the answer has everything to do with the fact that women in the United States of America, by the way, have a right to control their own bodies and make reproductive decisions. And the Mexico City Agreement, which denies American aid to those organizations around the world that, are, uh, that allow women to have abortions or even get involved 
uh, in birth control to me is totally absurd. So I think, especially in poor countries around the world, uh, where women do not necessarily want to have large numbers of babies, and where they can have the opportunity through birth control to control the number of kids they have, something I very, very strongly uh, support. Uh, I want to, uh, I want to introduce. Uh, 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 sorry. And so that right there was Bernie Sanders saying that he supports the Mexico City policy and wanting to actually fund abortions in these third world, really poor countries that are primarily African American and. You know, it's. I mean, what are we now? Are, are we communist China? Like that? That's absolutely insane that you would do that, and then that anyone holds that position. And really, it's quite. It's an evil position. We shouldn't be in the business of funding abortions internationally, so we can put in population controls and, and to stop global warming. If you want to stop climate change, you want to help it. I mean, that's not the way to go. And, and so, I just want to talk about that a little bit because, the, I mean, the Democrats. It's amazing what they can get away with. So you got Bernie Sanders here saying that he supports abortion in these really poor countries. So this is the man who says he wants to help the poor people. He wants to uh, lift the poor people up because the rich is taking all the poor people's money and it, they're evil and awful. And so Bernie Sanders is the working class man. He's going to implement socialism and save the workers, save the poor. And this is this has been his thing for ever since he's been a politician since the 1890s he's been doing this he's this has been a shtick uh and he was doing it in the 70s when he was praising uh the people in nicaragua the sentinistas and all of them he does it now he did it in 2016 so this is his shtick i am the socialist for the poor people and i'm gonna rise you up with socialism but at the same time i he says that he supports he said he supports these abortions funding these abortions in these really poor countries implementing population controls to help stop climate change and that's just insane i mean you can't say you're for the poor people and then want to eugenically destroy the poor people and then the other component about it is just how racist it is and how racist is it to say that we're going to fund abortion in these countries that are predominantly uh black people mainly in africa and probably in south america so also predominantly hispanic we're going to fund abortions there, implement these population controls to make sure that these people have less and less babies so they can uh, so they can stop contributing to climate change. And really, who is Bernie Sanders to even judge on who we should get rid of? Like, well, why is it the babies? How come we can't get rid of 85-year-old people if we want to help climate change? Like, I noticed a lot of people who offer these really crazy, bizarre, out-there solutions never want to start with themselves. And that really is the socialist aspect of it, too, because Bernie Sanders, he talks about the rich paying their fair share. And do you really need all of that and using the government to make the rich pay for everything? But at the same time, he owns a big house and then two beach houses. So this guy owns three houses and is lecturing us about having to give enough. But here he is saying that he wants to fund abortion in these poor countries to fight climate change. So that's just completely crazy, evil. Uh, it's, it's racist, and it really shows bias against the poor because I mean, we're not, presumably we're not going to do that in the United States or in Europe or in like China or Japan. And so the fact that Bernie Sanders can get away with that and everyone just shrugs their head and goes along, uh, that really goes to show uh, a lot about the Democratic Party now and where they're at. And uh, speaking of just 
absolutely crazy things. Well, the thing about the CNN town hall is it, it's amazing because it really showed that the Democrats they don't really care about solutions because they don't believe these solutions. All these Democrats who propose these pie in the sky, really expensive trillion dollar solutions, they know they're never going to implement it. They know it's never going to work and it's never going to stop climate change. However, they implement it anyways to virtue signal, to please their base, because they want to show everyone how virtuous we are. Look at us. We're so virtuous because we're willing to spend everyone else's money. And how do we know uh, who's more virtuous? By who's willing to spend more people's money. And so you got everyone just in this competition to say the most radical thing possible to please their base because they want it, They want to win the primary. You know, I'm not sure it's going to help them win the primary, or they help them win the general election, I should say. It will, might help them win the primary, and it probably will. And that's why we see Joe Biden lagging right now as Elizabeth Warren's catching up to her because she has so many ideas and proposals and everything because CNN loves them all because she has these ideas and proposals. Every single day, it's a new idea, new proposal. And you see, as long as they just keep throwing meat out there for their constituents they're going to keep rising up in the polls, and that's why Elizabeth Warren's starting to overtake Joe Biden a little bit. But the problem is that I don't think that's a general election strategy because what happens uh, whenever you say all this radical stuff and give all this meat to your base, well, now every single time you do it, you just had a cut a Republican uh, cut ad for a TV, and now Republicans are going to use you to attack to use that to attack you in the general election and it's going to happen and the voters are going to look at you and say well, you were saying all this crazy stuff back in the debates why should i vote for you now so I, I wonder if it's really a good idea for them to be promising this stuff and them to be virtue signaling this much to their base i think it could really come back and bite them but i look but i mean just how crazy this stuff is so kamala harris a lady who was probably going to be the front runner of the Democratic Party until Tulsi Gabbard knocked her out of the entire election uh, in the second town in the second debate night. Whenever she talked about how 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 Kamala Harris was actually smoking marijuana while locking people up for smoking marijuana, so it was, it was an amazing thing. So Tulsi Gabbard knocks her out. Now Kamala Harris is trying to get back up there, trying to get back up with Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden. I don't think she can do it anymore. I think she's done. She's hovering around 6, 6% in the polls now, about a 10% decrease since uh, last month. But let's look what she says, because Kamala Harris once has a very, very interesting idea, and so I'm just going to play it. Kamala Harris. So let's go straight to an audience question now. Carolyn Corsant is a lawyer from New York, Senator. She has a question about the impact of certain foods on the environment. Um, just to give some context here, the United Nations says that cattle, livestock cattle, uh, contribute 14.5% of all human-produced greenhouse gases, which is an incredible number. Caroline, go ahead with your question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, climate change has been linked to, uh, to agriculture and the overconsumption of red meat uh, and also the overproduction of crops. Um, certain countries have changed their dietary guidelines uh, to reduce the consumption of red meat uh, in light of the impact of, of the climate change. Yeah. Uh, if elected, uh, are you, will you be supporting uh, change uh, in dietary guidelines? And then how will you plan on implementing the changes so that people effectively change their diets? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, and thank you, Carol, for your work and the question. Um, there is... I, I think of the, the point that you're raising in, the, in, in a broader context, which is that as a nation, we actually have to have a real priority at the highest level of government 
around what we eat and in terms of healthy eating because we have a problem in America. Um, and we can talk about all that we are now the subject of this conversation. We can talk about um, the amount of sugar in everything. We can, talk, we can talk about soda. We could go on and on. Uh, so the answer is yes. Um, but I'll also say this. We, the, the balance that we have to strike here frankly, is about what government can and should do around creating incentives and then banning certain behaviors. I mean, just to be very honest with you, I love cheeseburgers from time to time, right? I mean, I, I, I just do. And, and I think that, um, and, and, but, there is, but there has to be also what we do in terms of creating incentives that we will eat in a healthy way, that we will encourage moderation, and that we will be educated about the effect of our eating habits on our environment. And we have to do a much better job of that, and the government has to do a much better job of that. So, we have, yeah. So, I mean, I'm just saying you love cheeseburgers. I mean, we all do. I don't know I whether mean, you know, from time to try time, the Beyond Burger. Yes, yeah, so I hope you can hear it there. But Kamala Harris is saying that she is actually going to ban meat or ban the amount of meat consumption you can have just so she can help out with the with climate change. So she wants to destroy the entire meat industry and increase the price of meat and everything to help out with climate change. And you know, the thing about it is she loves hamburgers. I mean, she says that she says, man, I love hamburgers and I love hamburgers from time to time, but you can't have them. You can't have your burgers because, because of climate change and because I'm going to be the president, which means I get to decide what how you can live your life and that's and that's the amazing thing and kamala harris does this worse than anyone when she's not flip flipping and flopping and flapping and flipping on her positions she's basically saying how she wants to control americans life from the bottom up or top down and it really is uh dis disheartening and really kind of scary to see that who was one of the uh top polling people uh just as a month ago just has such a tendency to want to control your life. She's always saying things like, in the first 100 days, Congress has to ban guns, or I'm going to ban guns with my pen. And like, lady, it's, it's not your job to ban guns. You don't have that power. But she's always saying this. In the first 100 days, if Congress doesn't do this to stop climate change, then I am going to, with the stroke of a pen, do this to stop climate change. It's like, well, you don't have that power. But she has this serious tendency... Uh, for the to, for a serious tyrannous tendency, the tendency to be a dictator, and that's really scary because you know the presidency isn't the king; it's not a monarchy; it's not all powerful. It does have rules and regulations, and it does it is an equal co branch of the government. So the president can just go and start telling Congress or the judiciary, "You have to do this for me, or I'm going to do it myself." That's not the way the presidency works. That's not the way it was ever meant to work. And the founders would be really fearful if they knew that people thought of it that way. The presidency is the executive. It's mainly foreign policy, and it's mainly meant to it's mainly meant for the executive to go out there and do the things the legislative branch can't do immediately. That's that's really what it comes down to. But everything else is really made for the legislative branch. That's why in the Constitution, there really isn't that much power delegated to the presidency. It's mainly all delegated to the legislative branch. But Kamala Harris, she doesn't know that, or if she does, she doesn't care because she's always talking about how she wants to do everything with a stroke of a pen via executive order and completely change the face of America and, and mold it in the way she wants. And it's a real big tendency on the left, and it, it is pretty scary. But... uh. Going back to what Bernie Sanders was saying earlier, this it really shows where the Democrats are at now that you got Bernie Sanders saying that he wants to uh, give funding to abortions 
outside of America in these really poor countries to stop climate change. And you got Kamala Harris saying that she wants to ban meat in order to help climate change. But well, what's the truth about this? So is overpopulation actually going to be a problem? Start Bernie Sanders first. Will overpopulation actually be a problem in the future? And will humans start dying because there's just too much of us? Well, actually, the answer is no. Overpopulation won't be a problem in the future, and people who do think it's going to be a problem is really spouting this Malthusian nonsense in which they think that the amount of humans is going to be in the world is going to overtake the amount of humans or the amount of food that uh, can supply uh, human consumption. And really, there's not much evidence for that. And uh, I can give you a few arguments. So the first argument is that as human population has actually increased throughout the ages and the centuries, what you've actually seen is that food production has actually gone up to meet the demand, and in a lot of cases, exceeded the demand. So lack of food hasn't been a problem so far, but what about resources? Maybe we'll use up all the resources, and Thanos will have to come and snap his fingers and wipe away half of all the humans on Earth. Well, that's really not a problem either, because as Thomas Sowell says, as it turns out, that the more humans you have, the more ability you actually have to produce new resources and to find and extract resources from all over the earth. So as human population increases, the amount of resources available to you increases. So uh, this Malthusian idea that overpopulation is going to kill all of us, it really comes from a time in, I think, the 1800s. I think it's Thomas Malthus who uh, was talking about this doomsday apocalyptic approach to uh, humanity where we're all going to die and starve because of overpopulation but take for example all the resources you had in the 1800s is not all the resources you have today for example in the 1800s oil was a brand new thing it was not something that people were used to especially in the earlier 1800s people didn't really know much about it it was coal coal was the way you got around so if you had a train uh you throw some coal in the furnace burn it and the train would run and it wasn't until about 50 years uh later or maybe I should say about 20 years after the Civil War, when he had Spindletop in Texas and oil uh, became a big thing and it replaced, it started replacing well oil and it led to a new resource. And it was human ingenuity uh, and the ability to tap that resource, which made it possible to thrive and it created the uh, one of the greatest economies on earth. It made people like uh, John D. Rockefeller really rich. And so it turns out the more humans you have, the more of ability of a a collective mental state you have to actually find and create these new resources that will help humanity. And uh, look look what they're talking now. They're saying uh, it's mainly science fiction right now, but they're saying one day in the future we can uh, start using fusion technology, which is technology. It's basically uh, green, uh, completely clean energy, which is almost self-sustaining and is basically what the sun is, uh, fusion energy. Now, eventually, we will have that, but that's not something we have now. But as we have more humans that populate the Earth and think about these problems and issues, we have more of a collective brain power to find and solve these issues, and then we get these new resources. It's just like nuclear was not something we had a long time ago. And so the the idea that we're all going to die from overpopulation is just not true. As the population increases, human life's actually going to get better. There were philosophers and politicians who thought in the 1970s that in 30 years, humans would be starving to death and the price of everything would go up because of overpopulation. And in fact, the exact opposite has happened. Uh, human population has gone up and the prices of everything goes down. You're living better today 
than they were back then in 1970. And there is about nearly a billion and a half more people since then, or maybe two billion. So it's just not true, this idea we're all going to die from overpopulation. But uh, what about uh, Kamala Harris banning meat? Well, do you really think killing the cows and killing the beef industry is going to stop climate change? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, but cow farts is not something that's going to destroy the earth. It, yes, it does help uh, increase CO2 emissions in the atmosphere. It does do that. But it is not the primary cause. And like, let's be honest, killing the cows and stopping people from consuming meat isn't going to do anything to stop climate change. If you really want to reduce CO2 emissions in the United States, you have to start moving the country over to natural gas, which is fracking or nuclear energy. These are the two uh, cleanest forms of energy we have right now that are also that are also work very well and very efficient. Fracking releases half the amount of CO2 that coal burning does. And energy is the cleanest form of energy we have and is also the most efficient. The entire... Uh, energy grid of France. All, all of France bases, bases its energy off of nuclear energy. But the problem is that Democrats hate those things. They hate fracking. They hate nuclear energy. They just want windmills and solar panels. But here's the problem. Windmills and solar panels are the most expensive, the completely the most expensive forms of energy there is and the least efficient. So it's completely pointless to use them because it actually hurts Americans more than it would otherwise hurt them if you just let climate change happen. And and this is the problem with these leftist policies. They know it's not going to work. They know if you actually want to reduce CO2 emissions, you need to pursue nuclear power. You need to pursue natural gas and fracking. But they don't want to because they'd rather virtue signal to their base about how they want to do all carbon neutral or or yeah, yeah, carbon neutral uh, energy or uh, the clean energy like solar and air, uh, solar and wind, I should say. And it's not going to work. It's something that's never going to happen. And it would, in fact, destroy the economy because the energy sector is a huge sector of the American economy. And so, uh, but but here's the, here's the weird thing about the climate change on the left. The left isn't coming at climate change from a reasonable perspective anymore. They're coming from it from the most apocalyptic sense there is. And it really goes to this in, in that leftism isn't so much an ideology anymore. It's becoming a religion on the left. And I don't know what you're thinking. Wait, well, what are you talking about? A religion? Well, yes, it's becoming a religion. And it's a religion of only sinners but no sin. And a religion in which their revelations, their doomsday is climate change. Which is why you get the most apocalyptic uh, ideas about climate change and you got these politicians like Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders and all, all of them talking about how we're all going to die in 10 or 11 years from climate change which is not going to happen the evidence doesn't show that the science doesn't show that even the most damning that even even the most damning evidence out there about climate change doesn't show that we're going to die in 10 years it's just not a thing that's going to happen but since the left looks at this as their apocalypse, as their Armageddon, their doomsday climate change, and they talk about it with such religious fervor, you get to things like this with a, a Swedish scientist promotes the most gruesome solution ever for fighting climate change. What is it? Well, it's cannibalism. So once Kamala Harris gets rid of all the cows and makes it where you can't eat meat anymore, well, then we're just going to turn to cannibalism. So the Daily Wire reports 
uh, by Hank, uh, Hank Barron, a Swedish behavioral scientist from the Stockholm School of Economics has an economical suggestion for fighting climate change, eating human flesh. Speaking at the Gastro Summit as a panel considered the topic, can you imagine eating human flesh? Stockholm School of Economics professor and researcher Magnus Soderlund opened that since food sources are diminished, people should accustom themselves to eating foods considered taboo as the Epoch Times reports. The Epoch Times notes that the panel's talking points includes these questions. Are we humans too selfish to live sustainably? Is cannibalism the solution to food sustainability in the future? Does Generation Z have the answers to our food challenges? Can consumers be tricked into making the right decisions? At Gastro Summit, you will get some answers to these questions and also partake in the latest scientific findings and get to meeting the leading experts. When Soderlund asked his audience to show how willing they were to consider his idea, only a few people raised their hands, but he said later that 8% of the audience was willing to consider the idea. Asked if he himself would be willing, he answered, I feel somewhat hesitant, but to not appear overly conservative, I'd have to say I'd be open to at least tasting it. Now, the Malthusian myth of world food scarcity has persisted for centuries, as Scientific American wrote. In 1798, Thomas Robert Malthus famously predicted that short-term gains in living standards would inevitably, would inevitably be undermined as human population growth outstrips food production and thereby drive living standards back towards subsistence. We were, he argued, condemned by the tendency of the population to grow geometrically while food production would increase only arithmetically. But as The Guardian pointed out in 2014, chronic hunger has a range of causes, but global food scarcity is not one of them. According to the World Food Program, we produce enough to feed the globe, global population of 7 billion people, as the world, and the world produces 17% more food per person than uh, today than 30 years ago, and the rate of food production has increased faster than the rate of population growth for the past two decades. So that's the other argument for the Malthusian nonsense about overpopulation I was talking about earlier. But this is a real thing. Uh, you have this Swedish scientist saying that we should start eating humans to reduce our consumption of meat and thereby combating climate change. Now, one, that's disgusting. But two... It goes back to this apocalyptic view of climate change that we're all going to die soon. And we got to do whatever is possible to stop it. Anything, anything at all, including eating humans and resorting to cannibalism, not out of a need, not, not because you're an American settler going out onto some mountain pass and you all get stuck in a snowstorm and starve and eat each other. No, no, it's out of necessity. No, no, it's because we have to do it because we're hurting the climate. We got to eat humans. Well, I got a few questions about this, like, which humans are we going to choose, for one? I mean, will this uh, Swedish scientist, well, will, will he volunteer himself? I, I assume not. So so who, who should who should we eat? And, you know, if you're thinking this sounds crazy, it's because it is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But you get to the point where you talk about this apocalyptic setting that's about to befall us, how we're all about to die in 10 years, which, let's be honest, we're all going to die in 10 years then there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, we're dead, and we might as well stop trying. But we're not going to die in 10 years. But acting like we are, and that we're always on the verge of death, it gets to insane things like this. And it's really not healthy for the country in any way. Uh, and so, so and, and so that's really what it, what, what it comes down to, is that the, the left has gotten so apocalyptic about climate change that they, they don't really care for the UN uh, climate reports that actually show that climate change 
won't really be a real super threat until 2100 and if the prediction models are at their worst in 2050 which which some math is more than 10 years then like, if Democrats will just talk about that and say, hey, well, in 2100, climate change might be a real problem. Let's talk about some solutions we can use to mitigate that and some technologies we could look into, such as building better seawalls and, and things like that. Then it would be fine, and I think it would actually be a good thing to talk about because it's good. We want to help mitigate wherever we can. But talking about how we're all about to die, how the end of the world is upon us, and we got to start eating people because beef consumption is just too dangerous now – I don't see how this is going to help you win an election in any way. I honestly don't. Uh, I honestly don't. But I, I want to talk about uh, some, some of the positives of climate change because we always act like climate change is doom and gloom. Well, climate change will have some bad effects. As sea levels rise, people will have to sell their properties and move inward. We will have to spend money on building seawalls and things like that. So that's not good. But there are some good things about it, such as Canada. If climate change happens at the rate that people were saying it's happening, I'm talking about the scientists, not the left, then uh, presumably Canada, uh, Canada, Canada would become farmable, and you can actually start creating farms in Canada, which would be good. That would uh, that would create more food, which creates more people, and that's a good thing for the world. Let's talk about Greenland. Greenland would become more habitable. You could actually go into Greenland and start doing some mining, get some of those resources that would increase the economy, help increase people's lives. And uh, in Antarctica, Antarctica would be a little bit more settable. You can go in Antarctica, study it more, put some colonization there. That would be some really cool stuff. So climate change isn't always doom and gloom. It's not always bad. There's always pros and cons to everything. And to act like that, there's just a con we're all going to die. is just dishonest. Now, now, the next thing I want to get to is something that isn't shocking to me, but as I talk to people about it, it is shocking to other people. And it's about how conservative students feel on college campuses. Now, college campuses are supposed to be places where we can all challenge each other and come together and exchange ideas and not uh, hate each other for it. It's a place where everyone's challenged and everyone can go and find themselves. But the problem is that universities today have become such a bastion of leftist thought that there is no way for conservatives to really get their ideas out there and their opinions, and it shows now. So there was a new poll that was taken recently of college Republicans and conservatives, and it showed that 73% of Republican students have hidden their politics over fears about grades. Now, that's a really sad thing. I understand hiding your politics if you just don't want to be ostracized in class and everything like that. And it's sad that it's like that, where if you say anything conservative in class, there's a fear that people are going to make fun of you. But this is even worse, that 73% of Republican students are hiding their politics because they are scared the professor is going to downgrade them. And that's that's really shameful, because uh, if we really are, if universities are in the business of actually challenging students, then Republican students, conservative students, should not have any fear over this. But alas, they do have fear over this, and they have good fear over it. So the National Review, uh, Catherine Timp at the National Review reports that a recent survey of 1,000 Republican and Republican-leaning college students has found that 73% of them have hidden their political views in the classroom because they're worried that exposing them could negatively impact their grades. College Pulse conducted the online poll at the end of August for a conservative campus news source, The College Fix, which has previously reported on its findings. Their survey polled conservative-leaning students only. According to the fix, the survey asked students, 
Have you ever withheld your political views in, in class for fear that your grades would suffer? 73% of students who consider themselves to have strong Republican views said yes, as well as 71% with weak Republican views and 70% of Republican-leaning independents have all withheld their views in class for fear of their professor dropping their grade. And that is a real fear. I've heard talk before on college campuses about how Republicans are – it's not really that bad. Republicans are just kind of victimizing themselves. No, it is a real thing, and it's because of things like this. I, ha I have a personal antidote to tell. So I took a summer class uh, uh, this, this recent summer, and it was Intro to Sociology. I'm not going to say who the professor was or anything, but there was a study that was done. He wanted us to look at the study, and they went to this uh, uh, park that had majority white residents inside of it. And what they did was they put a bike in chains, and they went and sent different people to go break the chains, break uh, the bike locks, and steal the bike. So they sent a white man, a black man, and a white woman. And what it showed, that the white man, people would go up and ask him, what are you doing? What... Uh, but why are you breaking into this lock? Why, why are you uh, cutting this lock, I should say? And he would, and he would be honest. He would say, oh, I'm stealing this bike. And then people would react uh, angrily and say, well, no, no, you need to get out of here. And then they did. They made the black student go and uh, try to steal the bike. And the residents went up to the uh, the black kid and much faster than they went to the white kid and started saying, hey, why are you stealing this bike? What, what are you doing? They... They got angry or a lot faster and approached him a lot quicker. And they had the woman do it. And people actually helped her steal the bike because they couldn't believe a woman was stealing the bike. Uh, and so my professor, he, he said, he made a question. And he said, I want you to answer this question in free response form. That this park, while the citizens may not be racist, the park itself is racist. Why am I correct? That was the question. Why is the professor correct? Not do you agree or disagree? Why or why not? Explain to me why I'm correct in my view. And so the, this professor did things like this a lot. And so you can never challenge the, the professor because I would say, no, the park is not racist. There are external factors into why people would approach the black kid faster than the white kid. I'm not going to get into that now. I can get into it later. But it has to do with the nature of discrimination in that there's three different forms of discrimination and one is bad, one is neutral, and one is actually a good form of discrimination. And before anyone starts calling me racist and saying that uh, I like to discriminate against people because I say it was a good form of discrimination, I'm just going to say right now, a good form of discrimination is you choosing Dr. Pepper over Coke or you choosing to get married to one woman and not the other. That's discrimination you need in society to actually function in society. It's me using uh, this mic that I'm using instead of the second mic. That's a third type of discrimination that's uh, that's a good type of discrimination. Because so I was using the other mic, I couldn't be uh, given this radio show. And so, so, but uh, I noticed that if I ever disagreed with the professor and said, "Well, I think that your assessment's wrong," and here's why, I would fail the question. He, he would just count. He would take off points for the question. And so I started just agreeing with him and started saying, "Yes, yes, you're absolutely right," and here's why. And then I started passing uh, the class and started getting A's on the questions. So. Uh, conservatives and Republicans definitely ha have a real fear and a correct fear of sharing their grades in class. Or not sharing their grades, of sharing their ideas and their opinions in class because they do know that a lot of the class will ostracize them. And they do know that some professors will actually take their points down. And it's, it really is a sad thing, but it's because universities today are not universities. 
They are not places where you go to get challenged. They are places in which a certain view is trying to be taught. And this view that's trying to be taught is leftism. And this goes back to leftism being a religion now. Since leftism has become a religion to the left, you cannot disagree with leftism because then you're disagreeing with the religion. You're disagreeing with the person. So if you go to someone who's on the left and you disagree with them and say, hey, you know, I, I respectfully disagree with you. To them, you're not disrespecting, you're not disagreeing with their opinion. You're disagreeing with them as a person because their opinion is their identity because their opinion is also their religion and that is leftism. And so if that's the case, if it's leftism, then there can be no, uh, there there can be no dissent in leftism. There, there can be no one saying, I disagree with that. And that's why college campuses have become this way because many professors at college campuses are on the left. I, I It's like 90% of them. I mean, it's no shocker. Everyone knows it. And, uh, and that doesn't mean 90% of all these professors are actually Brad professors. Some professors on the left are really good. I've had some really good professors on the left. Some of my favorite professors are on the left, and I really respect them. But there are some professors who do view it as their job to make sure that everyone agrees with them and that everyone is uh, is becoming a leftist and has been inordained and taught the ideas of intersectionality and gender and racial theory and everything like this. And if you disagree with it, well, then it's because you're just not a good person. And the reason you're not a good person because you're not disagreeing with the opinion, you're disagreeing with the person. And... So this is why professors in college campuses have gotten this way and have, have taught their opinions. And that's why Republicans and conservatives are scared to give their opinions in class. And then, and that's really sad because that doesn't just hurt uh, Republicans because they can't be challenged if they're not debating and arguing their opinions. It hurts, it hurts liberal students too, students that's on the left, because now they're uh, not having their ideas challenged. They're just being told their entire lives that they're completely correct and that there's nothing wrong with what they're saying. So what's going to happen to you if you're on the left whenever someone comes up to you and does disagree with you and it gives a good argument to why they disagree with you and you have nothing? And you have nothing because you've never actually been challenged because the people who can challenge you are too scared to speak up. And and since you have nothing, uh, it's gonna it causes this idea where, well, oh, well, now I've been violated as a person because this person disagrees with my identity. And it's like a positive feedback loop in that Republicans don't speak, uh, conservatives don't speak, and no one's challenged. And since no one's challenged, everyone becomes more set in their ways, and everyone's more set in their ways than to disagree with them, is to disagree with them personally. And it makes it where we can't have a conversation anymore. There can't be, there can be no debate. Because that means if there's debate, then there's no such thing as debate. It's just you fraternizing with the enemy. And that's what American politics has gotten to, if you, if you see. Um, the state of American politics now is awful. Everyone knows it's awful. And the reason it's awful, because everyone is the enemy. They're not opponents. They're the enemy. And if you fraternize with the enemy, then you've done something deeply, deeply wrong. And so you see this a little bit more on the left, but you do see it on the right too. We see, I think you see it a lot more on the left. Uh, but you do see it on the right. And that there are some people who are Republican who who uh, do say, well, why even talk to people on the left? They are, they're evil. They have all these evil ideas. They, they're socialists and all that. Why even talk to them? And you got people on the left who are saying, why, why should we talk to Republicans? Why should we care? Why should we work with them? They're racist, evil bigots who, who are sexist homophobes, and they want to uh, just make life awful for anyone. And if we have the worst intentions for each other, for our opponents, then 
politics does become war by other means. And that's not good for the country. And frankly, the country can't survive like that. We can't have a country in which everyone is at war with each other by through politics. Because that means when you see someone, they're not your fellow citizen. They're not your neighbor. They're your enemy. And what do you do with your enemy? You destroy your enemy. And how do you destroy them? Well, as we're seeing right now with the uh, with people on the left and some and even some people on the right now, as the left gets more radical, people on the right are radicalizing to keep up a, a little bit. What you're seeing is that people are actually uh, looking for ways to control each other, to control how people think and do, which is what that entire Democratic uh, scene in town hall about climate change was about. How can we control everyone's actions to, uh, to how we want them to? And so it's not good for the country. I'm not. I'm not sure the country can survive like that. Uh, we, we can't live in in two separate countries under one. It's, it just won't work. And and so uh, as and so as that goes on, that's there's no it's no surprise that conservative students are scared to talk about that. Now, uh, some information about me: I am actually a political science student at U of H, and my minor is national security. And that means I like to talk about foreign policy. Because I really enjoy foreign policy. I think uh, the United States has a very important and pivotal role in foreign policy in the world stage. That we should be in places like the Middle East and in East Asia, combating China, combating Iran, combating Russia. We should be doing these things because, one, it's the right thing to do. Uh, right thing to do. Two, it is within our interest to do it because as these countries grow more powerful, they start cutting against American influence, and that does have certain ramifications, which we will get into uh, later uh, d- down the road in this podcast, or this radio show, I should say, because it's not a podcast anymore. Uh, so I like to talk about uh, foreign policy, and the first thing I want to talk about is Trump meeting with the Taliban, or not meeting with the Taliban anymore because he canceled it. So it turns out that Trump was going to meet with the Taliban at Fort, uh, what was it, Fort um, uh, Camp David. Uh, so he's going to meet, meet with the Taliban at Camp David to discuss a possible negotiations to withdraw American troops. Now I should say this right now, uh, I hate that. I hate everything about that because, one, the Taliban is a terrorist group who do terrorist things. So, two, don't be surprised when the Taliban group, who is a terrorist and does terrorist things, does terrorism, and makes it where you can't have any sort of uh, peace talks or negotiations at all, which is exactly what happened. So, CNN reports that the pine-shaded cabins at Camp David have hosted secret peace summits between Middle Eastern leaders and high-stakes gatherings of major heads of states. For President Donald Trump, the mountainside retreat offered visions of another diplomatic coup, clandestine talks between U.S., Afghan, and Taliban officials that could end America's longest war. Even opposition from within his own national security team, including Vice President Mike Pence, could not deter Trump from pressing forward with his plan to host Taliban leaders at the rural presidential getaway. Trump eventually scrapped the event after a Taliban car bomb killed uh, a U.S. soldier and 11 other last week. But that decision came after a heated debate within the administration over the venue for the summit, an outgrowth of larger and more substantial disagreements over the wisdom of negotiating with the Taliban at all. The president told reporters Monday that discussion with the Taliban are dead, as far as I'm concerned. 
The talks have pitted Trump's hawkish national security advisor John Bolton against the nation's chief diplomat, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, whose agency has led negotiations with the Taliban over the past 10 months. Okay, so here's the problem. So you got Trump who wants to have these peace negotiations with the Taliban, which is a terrorist organization which, lest we forget, we invaded Afghanistan because the Taliban were refused to turn over Osama bin Laden after 9-11. So these are not nice people, and they are, in fact, evil people who do evil things, who are all radical Islamists, who who actually give Islam a bad rep because there are a lot of good Muslims and a lot, there are a lot of good different uh, sects and faiths of Islam, and the one the Taliban uh, preaches is one called Wahhabism, and it's very, very radical, and it really gives the Muslim world a bad rep, which is a shame because there's a lot of good Muslims out there. Uh, but yes, the Taliban are the worst of the worst. And the fact that we're negotiating, negotiating with them at all, and not just negotiating with them, but bringing them to us to negotiate, and not just that, but doing it on 9-11 week, is really terrible and really bad optics for President Trump. He should not be doing this. And I mean, what's the point of bringing the Taliban here? Like, what are you going to gain from it? It's nothing. Like, well, what's going to happen? We're going to pull out and just let the Taliban control Afghanistan? Well, we went to Afghanistan in the first place to stop the Taliban from controlling Afghanistan because they're exporting their terrorism to the United States. So uh, that seems dumb. But, well, one of the problems is that Trump, uh, he's, as he's telling his advisors, that he wants the optics to look good. He wants uh, it to be dramatic and everything. And that's really what it was about. It was about the optics. It was about being dramatic, even though it turned out to be bad optics, and it's bad uh, dramatics. And th and this is not how you do foreign policy. Obama did the same exact thing whenever he was president. Uh, we all got mad at him then. We should be mad now when Trump does it. Uh, foreign policy is not there to coat the ego of the president or to have some optics and to make a dramatization. That's just bad policy. It's bad for the nation. It doesn't help anyone. And so Trump later said that he was surprised. Like, why? Why would? Why would these uh, t Taliban people? Why would these terrorists bomb an American and kill him right before peace talks? Hmm. Why would they do it? I don't know. Are, are they terrorists? Whoa. Who would have thought? Yeah, they're terrorists. Of course they're gonna do it. And and they've been terrorists for <laughs> forever. Ever since the Taliban's been around, they've been terrorists because they've been terrorizing people. And so this is a. So th this whole thing is dumb. And Trump shouldn't have been. Uh, doing this at all we need to be in afghanistan we need to be fighting the taliban because we are actually making people's lives better there i know it's popular to say that we're uh in afghanistan because we're doing these awful things and we're bombing muslims and everything and because we're all awful it's really not the case uh we've constructed a lot of infrastructure in afghanistan we've, we've been constructing lots of schools and we've been giving people really good lives and that actually means something and not just that we've been stopping the taliban and stopping them from spreading their terrorism around the world which keeps americans safe and it keeps the world safe and that's something worth doing that's something we should be doing so there should be no peace talks with the taliban especially when we're not going to get a single thing out of it as as this entire thing showed I mean, there was nothing to be gained here and so I mean, so at least good for Trump for canceling it. Uh, good for Trump for canceling it because there are some presidents, as we're about to see, when a bad thing like this happens, they don't cancel it. And what is that? Well, Exhibit A, Barack Obama. So you might remember this thing called the Iran deal. It happened just a few years ago, probably about eight, ten years ago around now. I can't remember the exact date. In which 
the uh, American government under Obama flew Iran pallets of cash so they would stop building nuclear weapons for 10 years. And they said this was the greatest deal ever because Iran was moderating. And since Iran's moderating, we need to give them a bunch of money because everyone knows that when you give uh, the largest state-sponsored terrorism in evil countries a bunch of money, they suddenly stop becoming evil, just like North Korea has. Every single time we've given them money under every single presidency, including Trump, they, they just stop becoming evil until they launch another nuclear missile test. So same thing with Iran. There's this idea. If you just give evil people money, they'll just stop being evil. Well, they won't stop being evil. And so Obama sends the Iranians all of this, all these pallets of cash because he says they're they're modernizing now. They're, they're, they're not so radical anymore. They're becoming good people. So we need to give them a bunch of money. Well, bombshell reports from the Daily Wire reports that uh, Mattis says Obama refused to respond to Iran's act of war because of nuclear deal. Now, that sounds pretty bad. So Ash Snow at the Daily Wire reports that in a new book, former Defense Secretary James Mattis takes the Obama administration to task for its weak response to the growing threat of the Iranian regime. Excuse me. One bombshell included in the book is the Obama administration's tepid response to what Mattis referred to as an act of war by Iran, the planned bombing of a cafe in Washington, D.C., the Washington Examiner reported on Mattis's book where he described how during his time as leader of the U.S. Central Command, he repeatedly warned the Obama administration about Iran and Sunni Islamic terrorists, though he felt Iran posed the more deadly of the two threats. So basically, what happened here is that Iran went and tried to bomb a cafe in Washington, D.C., and the Obama administration, since they were pursuing the Iran deal... They completely just pretend it never happened, and this went completely under the radar. No one ever knew that Iran tried to bomb this cafe, but Obama put it, pushed it under the rug so he can push the Iran deal. So at the same time, while he was saying that Iran was moderating, Iran was attempting to bomb an American cafe, and then Obama, since he's so interested in making uh, – getting this nuclear deal with Iran, he just pushed that under the rug and went forward with this anyways. And that's some really bad stuff. I mean, that's some really bad stuff. When a foreign country tries to attack us and our leader, our president, responds uh, with that by giving them pallets of cash, we should all be concerned. And let's be honest, the reason this happens and the same reason that, uh, th that Trump's North Korea strategy I think has been a failure is because getting some type of agreement becomes the goal instead of getting a good agreement. And that's what happened with North Korea, and that's what happened with Obama with Iran. It wasn't getting a good agreement that was the goal, something that could actually that was actually useful to America and would actually stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. It was just getting an agreement at all, whether it's good or bad, and it was just for the optics of it. As I said earlier, when it's just for the optics, it's bad, it's useless, and it's usually counterproductive. And so that's something that should worry anyone. Uh, and so the next thing I want to get to here is uh, social issues. We're just going to start jumping through these social issues. And really, uh, this one isn't so much about politics. It's more about any college students listening, and it's about finding meaning at college. There's a lot of students who go to college to find themselves and to really go out there and find out who, who they are and what are they. And a lot of them either don't find it or they do find it, and it's one of the worst things possible, like nihilism. They find out there's no reason for anything. There's no reason for this world to exist and nothing really matters. It's a really bad view of the world, but one too many college students have today. So I want to talk about finding meaning at college. And the uh, first thing that you have to understand to finding any meaning at all is, might shock you, but that humans are evil. Humans are not good creatures. The 20th century tells us that. 
humans are very inept to act badly. Uh, but that should comfort you knowing that because if you know that humans are evil, that means you can do something about it. And this is where the meaning comes in. So since humans are evil, it doesn't mean that they're all evil. It just means that we have the great capacity for evil and we act on that uh, whenever uh, it suits us. And usually uh, it always suits us. And that's why it's our responsibility to act in goodness. And so if you want to find meaning at college, understand that you are a person with flaws. You're not a perfect person. There are things about you that are bad. And since they are bad, you have the responsibility to make yourself better, to make yourself good. So here's something you should do. Think long and hard about yourself. What is something that is wrong with me? What is something I do that I know to be wrong, but still do it anyways? Find that and start doing right. And once you do that, that's the first path to finding meaning. And then as you do this, you come to the next thing, which really will help you find meaning. And it's that you need to be a moral person. You need to act more morally. The way to find meaning in this world is to live a moral life. So while you're here at college, you should be out there going to your classes and looking to find yourself. But find yourself uh, in a way that's moral. There's a lot of immoral people out there, and they weren't always immoral, but they became immoral by going out there and trying to find themselves, but instead found something that was bad. So, this, so for example, the alt-right, awful, terrible human beings, the worst in America, racist pieces of garbage. Uh, the alt-right... It is truly terrible people. But the reason the alt-right grew so much in the U.S. in 2016 is, one, not because Trump winked and nodded at them. They, they didn't grow because of that. But it's because there's a lack of meaning in this country. And humans are going to try to find that meaning some way. And I, I'm going to say right now, leftism, intersectionality, uh, racial uh, gender theory is not meaning. And you will never find meaning in that. And... uh and people know, and people know you're not going to find meaning in that, especially when you're castigating people like white males and calling them, saying they have inherent racial bias and things like this. That's not going to help anyone. It's going to make the situation worse because they're going to say, "Yeah, well, screw you. Uh, that's uh, I'm not a terrible person, so I'm going to go look for the opposite of you because maybe that's the right thing. Because I know I hate you because you hate hate me. Therefore, I'm going to look for the opposite, and that's how they come to the alt right." Because they're looking for meaning, and they go to the worst thing because uh, people have gone the other the other side, have gone to their worst uh, tendencies. And so there's a huge lack of meaning in this country, which causes people to join these really awful movements like the alt-right. And even intersectionality, which is the equivalent of the alt-right, just on the left. And so if you want to really be a good person finding meaning in college, don't go to both extremes. Don't look at everyone, at, at people who disagree with you, as evil. And, and even this, don't pursue knowledge in college. Pursue wisdom. Knowledge is not inherent to goodness. It is usually inherent to evil, though. Nazi Germany was one of the most knowledgeable countries in the world at its time. It was awful, also one of the most evil countries to ever exist in history. The reason it, uh, And the reason for that is because they might have been knowledgeable, but they didn't have wisdom. There was no wisdom in Nazi Germany. And that lack of wisdom led them to do really terrible and evil things. So while you're in college, don't look for knowledge. If you want to find yourself, look for wisdom. And start by looking for wisdom by looking at yourself. And when you look at yourself, ask yourself, what am I doing wrong? 
that I know I am doing wrong, but I could be doing better. And once you figure what that once you figure what that is and you figure that out, then you will start on the path of becoming a good moral person and actually finding meaning in why you're at college and why you exist on this earth. And once you do that, you'll live a much happier life. And well, that's going to end it here at Liberty Talks for tonight. I've really enjoyed talking to you. This uh, has uh, been really fun for me. I'm really happy that the UH uh, Coog Radio is letting me do my podcast on here. So I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful night. I'm John Douglas. Make sure to check out Liberty Talks on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spreaker, or Spotify. And check out our website, libertytalks.net. And I'll see you here next week. And that was it tonight. Our podcast tonight was brought to you by our music contributor, Franco Luciano. I also want to let everybody know that you can find Liberty Talks Podcast now on Apple Podcast, on Google, and Spotify. Yes, we've expanded here at Liberty Talks where you can find our podcast at most of the mainstream podcast hosts. So please check it out. Spread the word and continue listening to Liberty Talks podcast every single week.